Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, this is Dan Lebetard. Welcome again to South Beach Sessions. We have been using this platform to introduce you to some of the new people who will be helping us make Metal Arc Media the voice over the next couple of years that we hope will echo. We have among us today... Probably the finest journalist we have around here, certainly in the conversation. Look, it makes him bashful, but Howard, you've been doing a lot of good work across many, many years, and you've been doing a lot of work in sports that isn't just about sports, so we are thrilled to have you, obviously. And I just wanted to introduce the audience to you a little bit biographically, so thank you for being with us, but let's start there. When and how did you decide that you were going to try and make a go of it a hard way as an artist, as a writer? That is not an easy way to make a living. No, no. And especially back when, uh, you know, you get into the business, they the first thing they tell you in J school was, if you're thinking you're going to make any money in this business, think again. Go down to Speakman Hall and go, uh, go into the business of, uh, you know, go into the MBA program. So no, I mean, to me, I think that um, I always felt like I had it easy. And when I say easy, I simply mean that when you talk to college students, you talk to kids, I talk to my own child now. Um, it's a, you know, life is, a t- it's a two pronged thing, right? Well, what do you want to do? And how do you get there? And for me, I always knew what I wanted to do. I always knew I wanted to be a reporter. I knew I wanted to write. That part wasn't the, the hard part. The hard part was, okay, now that you know this is what you want to do, how do you get there? And so to me, I just, I kind of look at it as it was process of elimination. What else did I like to do? What else did I want to do? There really wasn't anything else. So I had to uh, make a go of it. And and I'm glad that it that it's worked out the way that it has, but it certainly has been a bit of a circuitous route. What were the challenges early on? Well, I think that the first thing, you know, growing up in in Boston and then going to school in Philadelphia at Temple University, the the first challenge, obviously, was trying to figure out where you fit, right? I mean, I think that's one of the biggest things that we all sort of go through. I didn't even have any intention of going into sports. I wanted to go into politics. I wanted to, I was like a total news junkie. I was a meet the press this week with David Brinkley, CBS in the morning, you know, all of those face the nation, all of those different programs. And, and I was completely influenced by the op-ed pages and then, you know, the Boston globe and Philadelphia inquirer and, and all of that, that was exactly what I wanted to do. I had zero thought that I was going to go into sports because I still wanted to be a fan. I was a crazy, crazy, uh, obviously Boston guy, but at the same time, I was actually talking to someone about this last night that um, because I'm watching the Stanley Cup and like, how on earth can a Boston guy actually have any love at all for the Montreal Canadiens? And it was just because I like dynasties and uh, some of the guys were my favorite players back when I was in high school. So I wanted to just stay when it came to sports. I just wanted to, you know, just enjoy sports. And it all sort of shifted 
when I wanted to really take on a subject. I wanted to write about race and the Red Sox. I wanted to write about that history. It had been driving me insane that every time we talked about race in Boston, we always talked about whether or not the Red Sox were racist, whether Tom Yaki was a racist, the owner of the Red Sox. But nobody ever talked about the players. Nobody ever talked about the people who actually wore that uniform. And as a Boston kid who grew up during busing and during the desegregation years as well, when you see all those all those images of, of people just tearing each other apart, of black people getting the hell beat out of them in, in, in Boston in the mid-70s, I was in first, second grade. And when people talked about busing, they always talked about the inconvenience of the white community, what they were going through, what was being forced upon them. But nobody really paid attention to us and that our parents and our family had to make these really, really difficult decisions to put us in those situations as well. So you had this combination of, you know, wanting to tell stories that that represented where you were from. And also you had this interest in this other story of the history of the Red Sox. And the only way to get that story was to be into sports. And so my plan had been to to take a job in sports get enough sourcing to write that book. And hell, I've been here ever since. Did you have anybody that you could read at that time in the Boston newspapers who thought like you, looked like you? <laughs> looked like? Well, no, this is the 70s and the 80s. Not really very many. Derek Jackson, op-ed page of the Boston Globe. I used to sneak in. And when I was at Temple, we had the archives for all the other papers. So Chuck Stone, Philadelphia Daily News, Asel Moore, Philadelphia Inquirer. And you know that gang because you were part of the Knight Ritter machine for a long time. And um, uh, I think that uh, William Raspberry, Washington Post, was one of my all-time favorites. And so, and of course, the biggest guy for me was Bob Maynard. Uh, Bob Maynard was always, I mean, he was a routine guest on, uh, on This Week with David Brinkley. And the fact that I started my career at the Oakland Tribune where he was the publisher, you know, the, still the first and the only majority black owner of a mainstream newspaper in this country. So for me to start my career there in, in Oakland was, it was like a dream come true in a lot of ways. And, and that's really, it's really important to have somebody up there provide for you a pathway that, that lets you know you can do this as well. So how improbable was your path? How complicated was your path? How difficult was your path? Oh, I'm not, I don't really think it was much, much different from anybody else who was broke. <laughs> I think that was the big thing. But I always look at it as, I think that the the thing that really gave me a lot of confidence to do the job was the fact that I had an idea of what I wanted to do. And I really felt like if you could, if you could hang in there, um, then maybe you would be given an opportunity to try you know, to try to do this job. The problem is, as we all know, is that sports writers are like Supreme Court justices. They last forever. So if you have to be willing to move, you have to be willing to move around and go to where the opportunities are. And to me, the question was going to be, who's going to give you a chance? And it had always been, I was never that guy who got tapped on the shoulder like a Mike Lupica or somebody who gets to be a columnist at 24 years old, 23 years old. It wasn't like that for me. So to me, it was always, you were, when I was in Oakland, when I got on the A's beat in 98, the same people who I was behind in 1991, when I got in the business, they were in the same spot. So I had left 
in, and I had gone in 93, 94, I had switched over from sports and gone into technology. So I was covering tech, I was covering business. And so when I went to the San Jose Mercury News in 95, I wasn't in sports anymore. So it was sort of a circuitous route to get back to sports simply because there were no opportunities. And even today, it's, I always tell people, our good friend, Bob Ryan, Bob Ryan was in that job when I was in diapers. <laughs> Bob Ryan was in that job when I got on the A's beat. Bob Ryan was in that job when I got to, when I was, when I was 38, when I got to ESPN. So you have to be willing to sort of see it through. And to me, the fight really, it was the books. I, I tell people all the time, if you're not the one who's tapped on the shoulder, you have to find a way to say the things that you need to say. And luckily, I, I got the opportunity to write some books and to, to, to tell stories that way. And every time I wrote a book project, suddenly opportunities opened up. I'm the same guy, though. There were no opportunities before that. So you had to, as I always say, at least once in, in your career, you got to bet on yourself and see if you've got something to say that people want to listen to. How unhappy were you and far from your dream in that tech job? I actually love technology, to be honest. I actually had a great time with it. And the the only reason I had left was because I wanted to write Shut Up. That was the only reason. I really enjoyed the technology I was on. It was sort of fascinating. It was actually really, really helpful to me because covering you know, covering Eric Benamou at 3Com and covering Bill Gates and covering Larry Ellison and covering these gazillionaires who were completely changing the culture of, you know, going from, you know, business PC into the personal computer space. So all of a sudden, you know, I was right there on the ground floor. I tell people, gee, you know, I started covering this when AOL, CompuServe and Prodigy didn't communicate with each other, right? But you actually had to you had to choose one of the three services and they didn't communicate with one another. I thought all of that was great because it was just, you could really feel the culture and the shift in, in where society was going. And it was actually really helpful to me when I finally got back into sports, it demystified walking into that room. So I didn't go from having posters of Dr. J and Larry Bird on my wall to having to talk to them. So it was like, I've spoken to people smarter than you guys. I've spoken to people more famous than you. I've spoken to people richer than you. So I'm not as intimidated as I would be if I had gone straight from sports fan into the clubhouse. I'm guilty of applying my own sensibilities there. I so badly wanted to do sports that if I were in something technical, I would have I would have found it soul-defeating. I wouldn't have been as ambitious about curiosities and learning. I would have found the, the writing very dry and, and compared to the sports books specifically. Yeah, well, and that was, the fun, that was the fun part, actually, of how do you make this interesting? Because remember, we're talking 94, 95, so people are just now starting to buy PCs and having home computers and having, I mean, even at that time, internet was not available to everybody. You had to have a commercial service. So the, the challenge for me was, how do I explain what is happening technologically and not make it really, really dry? It was like we used to say that, you know, people want their toasters to make toast. They don't care how the toaster works. They just want it to make toast. And so I remember trying to find all kinds of different writing devices to explain what was happening and why PCs were coming. And, and also, let's not forget what was also happening during that same period. It was Telecom Act in 1996. And so everybody was going to be forced to have a computer. I remember doing all of these stories as well about not very dissimilar stuff to what we write about now, about equality and fairness and equity and all these things where you had these corporations 
who were now charging you more to call an airline, to book an airline ticket. You had to do it online or if it was going to cost you $35 more. So you could feel all the economic implications that came with it too. So it wasn't boring at all. Writing about microchips, now that's boring. <laughs> but the stuff that, you know, where we were moving into were essentially, you know, when you think about it, somebody was asking me this the other day, how many services, how many monthly services do you pay for? The technology has forced us to spend more money uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I don't even want to think about it, but I'm, I'm pretty sure. I mean, just I'm dropping probably 500 bucks just on phone and cable because I need cable for, you know, to watch television. So I can't just be a cord cutter for what our jobs are. So the economic implications and what technology has forced people to do is very much an accessible human story. Did you know enough to invest? Because you were learning faster than most of us how much uh, how much the world was about to change. Well, you were at the Herald in 95, weren't you? 95, 96? Oh, I remember using couplers. I remember putting the, the telephone, a landline, placing it. I mean, I'm I, yeah, oh, I, yeah. Might, I might as well have, have been, you know, dipping a pen, a feathered pen in ink. It was so long ago. Exactly. Writing those stories in the Trash 80, right? So... The um, the Mercury News had a had a company policy that we were not allowed to invest in the in 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 technology in Silicon Valley. So they could, <laughs> we couldn't. So I'm covering all this stuff, and I'm like, wait a minute, the newspaper, and we would have to write these disclaimers in the copy. The Mercury News, which actually owns stock in whatever company you know I was writing about at that moment, and I was like, well, wait a minute. I can't invest in any of these. So yeah, here I am living in the Bay Area where everything is just going haywire price-wise and you're getting priced out by all these people who have stock options and you have none of them. <laughs> the joke is on you, my friend. The books are the most fulfilling work, correct? From oh, everything no from everything you've done in your career. How's your process? Do you enjoy the doing of it? Well, I'm just finishing book number 10 right now and it's killing me, but yeah, absolutely. I've I had so many people say to me that I want to have a book. I want to, I want to write a book, but I don't want to have written a book. Right. So you don't want to do the actual work. I'm a, I'm a news junkie. Man. I really love research. I love research. I love digging in. I love the serendipity of research. I'm extremely disappointed in where our country is going in terms of access to information researching on the internet is nothing like researching in a newspaper or a microfilm or anything like that, because you don't get the serendipity of knowing what that time was like at that time period. You know, like if you're going to go look up when I did my Hank Aaron book and you want to go look at a game that took place in 1957. So you have to go through the microfilm and half the time you're not even looking at the game. You're looking at, Oh, a car was $800, right? You're looking at all the, the different things that are happening in the world around you. And that actually, so much of that serendipity ends up getting into the, into the book. Today, when you're searching on the internet, you essentially get a targeted search. The targeted search is what your keywords are and what you're looking for. So you don't actually get a lot of the background of what's happening. It's not as though, you know, you could be looking at a, you know, a, you know, a story is a big story. If suddenly, you know, looking at the microfilm, it's on page one. Right. So you're starting to get a lot more of a feel for those times. Like there was a great, you know, when I was working on the Aaron book, there was, I think Henry hit 
you know, the famous home run to get the, you know, the Braves into the, uh, into the World Series, they won the pennant. That story made the front page. And on the exact same day, I believe that was when the federal troops were going into uh, Arkansas with Orville Fabus and, and Little Rock. So you wouldn't have known that just by doing a targeted search of Hank Aaron and, you know, Billy Muffet winning the, you know, the 57 pennant. You had to see where that story was placed. So I, you know, my process is I always dig in, you know, I'm not, I'm not Jeff Perlman where, you know, you do 800 interviews and then you start writing. I pretty much try to write as I research because I just, I'm, I don't write books full time. So I don't have that sort of luxury to just dig in. Um, so I, I find myself, first of all, you know, it's like the five steps of anxiety. Number one, do you have an idea? Number two, can you get it? Number three, do the work. And number four is, did you pull it off? And then number five is what's next. And so for me, number three is actually sort of my favorite because I really, really enjoy digging in because it's the only time where something is yours. As you know as well, editors are on your ass. Everybody's telling you what you can do. Everyone's telling you where you can write. Most times when we work, you're doing other people's work. This, this is yours. You make it what you want it to be. It's the closest thing you have to a time machine too, right? What you're mm-hmm. talking, that's why you're enjoying the specifics of going back in time. Yeah, well, it, it's true. And, and, and I'm fascinated, once again, whenever I think about us as a civilized society, when you think about a civilized world, you think about how much we've actually saved, right? That's sort of amazing when you think about it. All this time that has passed, how much has been, how much has survived? And then when you think about how much has survived, you're thinking that's got to be what? one third of 1% of what didn't. So what don't we know? What has been lost during all this and and what is the historical record? So it's actually really, really fun to sort of dig in and think about what, not just the information that you have, but the information that you don't have. You're disappointed by the way that information is dispensed these days. You don't actually have to learn anything. As Pat Sajak, the wise philosopher, says, you just have to know how to find it. What are your feelings about the general state of journalism as someone who has cared, who's dedicated his life's work to it? Yeah, I'm really concerned about it. I'm concerned about the literacy part of it. I'm concerned about the access part of it. Concerned about all of it. And I think that's one of the things that's been so interesting. I've been you know, we sometimes we sit and joke at the bar saying we're going to be the guys at the end of the bar. It's going, yeah, journalism. I used to do that. Right. And like no different than the guys in the in the in the 1930s who are like, you know, before refrigeration did I used to haul, you know, I used to haul ice. What does that mean? Right. And so in, you know, in this business where we are right now, how much value is how much value is there to what you do? And the world is shifting and people don't even care necessarily in a lot of ways about how important it is to have a free press. All of these different, these fundamental things that we talk about, you know, it's like you don't want these things until you need them, right? You don't want to hear all the stuff until you're like, well, wait a minute, how come nobody talked about that? Or how come nobody held someone accountable? We are, um, when I talk about being disappointed, you look at this, whether you're talking about the Shikari Richardson story, whether you're talking about the Naomi Osaka story, you're talking about all these different things that are happening right now. And people are very, very much eager to just blame media. For, it's the easiest thing to do. And I do think that one, it's been building for years and we don't help ourselves because we've made enormous, colossal mistakes in the business. 
But that enemy, enemy of the people stuff is real. And that's, you know, that stuff about whether or not, you know, the enemy is you. It, it is not a small thing. And it's one of the reasons why you, you see the vitriol toward the free press until you need it. Until you need somebody to hold somebody accountable because this company, you know, poisoned the lake that got, you know, you know got your kids sick. And then all of a sudden now you want accountability. It's a tough place to be right now. Howard, one of the most mortifying things to me about the last four years isn't just that an axe has been taken to journalism, to credibility. It's the buffoon wielding the axe with no <laughs> grace who was able to tap into an America so dissatisfied by its free press that they would choose that orange turd as a man of the people instead and let him do that to checks and balances while, you know, flirting with Russia and kind of wanting to be a dictator. Yeah, but it's not him. I mean, he's just he was just a vehicle. It's this has been going on. This is this is what we've created. And I think this is whether you're talking about it from a media standpoint. I always look at it this way. If you go back to 1970 and you go back to look at the you, you know, you, you look at the, the public wealth in this country has shifted so dramatically from public wealth to private wealth that eventually everything is going to belong to the individual and there is no public. I mean, isn't that what Mar Margaret Thatcher said in the 80s? There's no community. There is no community. And if you believe that, then... Of course you wouldn't want a free press. Of course you wouldn't want somebody you know, trying to hold you accountable. No institutions are being held accountable. And, and there's, no, there's no accountability to the public. And the public is the one in so, so many instances that is very much welcoming this until once again, until they need to go to the hospital and say, well, wait a minute, nobody cares for me. There's nobody looking out for me. There's nothing here for me. I can't afford, you know, $300 a month prescriptions and all of these different things. We know all, you know, and, and so this is where it's going. And I think it's really interesting from a sports standpoint. I think that this great battle when we're talking about where we are in sports, the athletes in a lot of ways have been laid to the party. The, the entertainers, they understood it, that they did not have to be necessarily um, responsible to a public. They give you a performance and they leave. Sports has always been that one place where we've tied the public and the private, where it was the culture of the sport and the traditions of the sport is that you had a responsibility to answer the public. And it's very paternalistic and incredibly racist and sexist and all of those different things. And the players now realize they've got the power. And what are they gonna do with the power? And the power is going to turn us into propaganda that they'll talk when they feel like talking. They won't talk unless they control the the platform, it's their production company and that LeBron doesn't do anything unless it's on one of his networks or one of his, uh, you know, one of his groups. So yeah, there's a real interesting road that we're about to take. We're going down a, a, an unprecedented place and I, you know, and the pandemic's not helping at some point. I mean, I've always said that at one day it's going to be like the movies where you go and watch a sporting event and then you leave. They gave you a performance, and then you go home. No locker room, no discussion. That's it. A lot has changed over the years, but you know one thing that has the great taste of Miller Lite? 
Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what's the best thing about the original light beer? I pose this question to you. I don't know. You tell me right now. Okay, yeah, that's good. I like that. Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975, and we still haven't settled it. The best thing for me about a nice Miller Lite is when I'm on the boat, I bring those tall... I, I don't even go for the, the regular 12-ounce cans. I hit the tall boy 16-ounce cans. They usually come in a four-packs wherever I buy beer. You put it in the cooler. You put some ice on top. The moment you take it out and the sun reflects off that gold top of Miller Lite with that white can, a beautiful sight out on the open ocean. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling, and it tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com beach, or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 96 calories per 12 ounces, fewer cows and carbs than premium regular beer. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You mentioned Osaka. You mentioned empowerment. She is guest editing something called Racket Magazine. She's writing the cover essay, Time mm-hmm. Magazine. I saw that you weren't liking the idea of this is the highest paid woman in sports, and somebody was suggesting, see, they don't need sports journalism anymore. The most powerful people don't need sports journalism, and you didn't like that so much. No, well, what I didn't like was the story. I didn't like the idea is, is there room for, you know, for traditional sports journalism? There is. There's plenty of room for it. There's plenty. The thing that always gets me about this is that I think we go out of our way to try to find the apocalyptic moment. And actually, when you really take a step back and you look, there's plenty of things to say and there are plenty of people that want to hear it. There's all kinds of opportunities to say things. Is there... Are we at a critical point in terms of control? 100% we are. I was watching the um, the Tina Turner documentary, uh, the recent one that came out, and I was looking at that and I was going, this is in the complete control of Tina Turner. It's like when you, you have to really dig in and read so many other sources to find out what, you know, it's like the death of truth, the Michiko Kakatani book, the, the death of, of having some form of commonality because the people who are are telling the story. These guys are in a position right now where they want to they want to ask the questions and give you the answers. They they want to cut out the middleman whether you whether it's the last dance, whether you see it with the every athlete having their own production company, whether it's Naomi Osaka doing her thing, you know, and this is one of the things that we have to navigate and it's no different what they're doing is no different than you know, what Rob Manfred is doing. Rob Manfred is a commissioner of baseball. Does he answer questions? No. Does Roger Goodell answer questions? No. Did Barack Obama answer questions? No. And he had promised to be the most transparent president and gave the fewest press conferences. Nobody wants to answer questions. And I understand that. And that is the adversarial nature of what we signed on to do here. So I'm not, I don't expect them to, uh, to hand the information over. As you know, it's our job to go get the information. What gets lost there as democracy dies in darkness? Yeah, and what and what gets lost there is the um, you know the dark armies are marching, 
which is, by the way, a great sentence if you're a Bostonian to try and navigate. The dark army's a margin. I mean, that's how it's <laughs> supposed to sound. I try really hard to keep that down. Um, but, <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, I mean, this is what happens. The, the powerful people, and this is the thing, right? I don't mean to cut my own sentence off, but it goes back to if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying, right? So we allow them to get away with stuff because then it allows us to get away with stuff. And if they're going to get away with it, we're going to get away with it. And then that's how you sort of spiral and race to the bottom. And I don't mean to sound like a Pollyanna about it, but that is the, you know, that is the end game in a lot of ways. And so you start to see it in the small and then you start to see it in the big, right? Why does, why are we cool with people not paying their taxes? Because we don't want to pay our taxes, right? So you start to see all of these different things spiral and the end result of it is not going to be pretty. You mentioned your 10th book on Ricky Henderson, and I feel like we could do about a dozen a dozen <laughs> South Beach sessions on just the stories that you have uncovered. So why did you decide to do this particular book beyond he's one of the most interesting athletes of our lifetime? Well, it all started back in 2014, actually. I was with Henry Aaron for, for his 80th birthday party. And we're down in D.C. and they, it was a big old weekend and all kinds of stuff was happening. And so I was on stage at the Smithsonian, just Henry and me on stage. And it was phenomenal. It was a great, great moment. And when we got off, his, off the stage, I met Ricky's wife, Pamela. And she had said, I want you to do for my husband what you did for Henry Aaron. I was like, I didn't do anything for Henry Aaron. He did it himself. <laughs> I just wrote about him. But that was the first time when it was like, OK, maybe it's time to think about Ricky as a, as a, as a figure. And as we talk about like this wave of where sports has gone over the past century, you, you really do have waves. You have this third wave, you know, Dr. Harry Edwards talks about it in five waves. I've talked about it really in three waves. You know, you go into the first part of the 20th century, you've got the immigrant story. Sports was the immigrant story. This was the way for the Irish, the Italians, the Poles to become American, right? The, the, the parents didn't speak English, but the kids played baseball. Or, or boxing or whatever. And that's how they became American. The second half of the century was the integration story. You begin to move from a segregated society into an integrated society. Sports is at the head of that. Then you start to move into this third wave, which is the less heroic wave, which is the which is the commerce wave, the industry wave, the money wave, where the athletes are suddenly super rich now. And that is the story that people don't really want to talk about because it's not really a fun story. This is the, this is the part of the story where they got to be really, really distant from us. And Ricky's in the middle of that. Ricky's the guy who, when you go back and look at his career, it's fascinating to me, and this is why I wanted to do the book, that everybody wants to tell Ricky stories and Ricky's really funny and you know, Ricky in the third person and all this Ricky stuff. But if you go back and look at Ricky in the day by day, 1979, when he started his career up until about the beginning of the 94 strike, he was one of the most unpopular players in the game. He was the guy who was the epitome of the strike, lockout, selfish, money, Ricky wants his money, ball player. And how he went from that transition, how he transitioned from that into essentially becoming this combination of Yogi Berra and Satchel Paige is sort of interesting. It's been sort of fascinating that he's been forgiven in a lot of ways. And I, and, and I think as much as we talk about the analytics, we talk about all the other reasons, I think, one, the analytics folks saved him. But I also think this is sort of that triumph of talent. He's that damn good. 
I mean, he really began to sneak up on you when you look at his numbers. This guy's, you know, he's in Ruth Cobb territory. And so for as quirky and as funny and as he is, you look at him and you go, wow, this is this guy was the real deal. And he was not treated as the real deal during his career. You were being modest, but what would Ricky Henderson's wife tell us you had done for Hank Aaron? What specifically do you think called her from your book with Hank Aaron? Well, I think it's an American thing. I think that when we think about the American story, right, when we think about big people get big books, right? That's a very American thing. I don't know about the other cultures, but when you walk in and you go into somebody's bookcase, uh, bookcase behind me, the big guys get the big books. They get the big doorstops. And that is a sign of respect. That's a sign that you made it, that you are a figure of value. And when I talked to Henry Aaron about this, when we first spoke, and it was in 2006, I believe, and we're on the phone for a half an hour and I'm trying to get him to bless this project so he'll at least cooperate. And he only asked me one question, how many pages is it going to be? Which was like a wild question. And I'm like, I'm talking to Hank Aaron and this is what he wants to know. But I got it. When I hung up the phone, I was like, oh, he gets it. He doesn't want some paperback. Are you going to do this the right way befitting of where I fit in this culture? And I think Pamela saw that as well. Ricky's a big figure. Does Ricky get a big book or are we going to just sit there and tell third person stories about him? And I I say all the time, if you think you're going to get 300 pages of third person in this book, you've come to the wrong place. It's really not that book. How does it come to be that Ricky Henderson, excellent as he was, is so nomadic? Well, I think there's a few things at work. I mean, I think obviously Ricky's not easy and Ricky is not an easy figure to deal with. And, and, and I think the times have changed. I, you know, I think I begin to attribute that to Ricky and Sandy Alderson in the early nineties, where if you were a hall of fame level player, you didn't get traded all the time, but as the money started getting bigger right before and after the strike, now suddenly it became part of the business model that, you know, you've got expiring contracts or whatever. We're going to try to get a guy, you know, Ricky told me this. He's like, yeah, you know, and all of a sudden, if you needed to win, you go get Ricky. And if you need it, and of course he's talking like this, you know, Oh, you need to win the pennant, go get Ricky. You need a spark, go get Ricky. You need, you know, you, you know, you're trying to make a, a pennant run, you go get Ricky. And so it's amazing when you go back and look, this guy played for nine teams. And to be that good to play for nine teams. And it's actually become more common that Albert Pujols is on his third team. You wouldn't have thought that some of these guys at that level. Now, obviously, Ricky's at the top. Winfield's not far away. Winfield played for, what, five teams? And so it's it's a thing now because the money is so huge that, you know, what did, we, what did, what did our parents tell us? You know, the days of you working for one company are over. The days of ballplayers beginning and ending with one team, long over. I loved him so much, though, Howard, because I just simply had never seen anything like that. I'm watching these games with my grandparents. They are introducing me to sports, and I simply have never seen this kind of arrogance and this kind of swagger. I had no access to somebody being this kind of a peacock. I believe Ricky Henderson might be more responsible for me loving the showboats and the lack of sportsmanship and not 
needing to treat it with such, you know, whatever it is, however it is that one defines sportsmanship, that you could fall in love with your greatness. Wasn't he standing next to Lou Brock while holding the base (laughs) over his head, shouting next to Lou Brock, I'm the greatest? Yeah. And and Ricky said, I will never live that down. He was so he got killed for that absolutely killed for that. And not only did he get killed for that, but that actually happened to be the same night that Nolan Ryan throws a no hitter a few hours later. And then those two got pitted against each other saying, see, this is what a true sportsman is like. This is what a humble athlete is supposed to be. And the number of people who just loved Ricky for that. And what are we talking about today? We're talking about how boring baseball is and how baseball has no personality. People miss that. Suddenly you miss it. When you had it, it was like, this is somebody who is, disrespecting the game and yet everybody now wants to tell some story of how Ricky made their life fun you know of how Ricky was phenomenal like I was talking to Mo Vaughn about this and Mo was telling me about how he gets to first base and he used to nickname Ricky Gas and he said because having Ricky on first was like you know pouring gasoline on a fire and he would go up and he would put a couple of tags on him because, of course, the pitcher would keep throwing back and tagging and tagging. Ricky would look at him and say, hey, I got to go because he's wearing me out right now. <clears throat> I got to go because he's hitting me too much with the glove. And then every time he would come up afterwards, you know, Mo would say, what up, gas? You going? And Ricky would say, you know, I am. And <laughs> out he goes. And so it's the numbers. It's the numbers. It's the personality. It's all of the things. And it's. And, and let's not forget that you go back to 1989, they're writing stories. Ricky's been in the league 10 years. And you know, there are people saying too bad he's not a better player, that he was an underachiever. I mean, all-time records don't get broken until you're old, fat, out of shape, because that's why they're all-time records. It takes that long to break them. Ricky broke the all-time record when he was 32. He's 32. I mean, no, there's only one other record that comes close to that. And that is Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth broke the all-time home run record in 1921. He played 14 more years. But that was because the ball changed, right? That's because they went from dead ball to live ball. Ricky broke an all-time record. And he played 10 more years as the all-time <laughs> record holder stolen bases. You know, when we were coming up, it was, it was, it was Ricky and Tim Raines, right? That these two guys, Tim Raines in the National League, Ricky in the American League. Ricky's got 600 more stolen bases than Tim Raines. I mean, he obliterated the sport. And so at the end of the day, you start looking back and it really is the numbers that go, oh my goodness. But the stories are phenomenal. I mean, I could tell you Ricky stories all day now. Well, you can go ahead if you want. If you've got a couple in your arsenal that you just want to tease the audience with, because I'm going to promise them that that's going to be a good book on well, on, a, on a character who's a bit, I mean, a bit of a cartoon. So I, I really can't wait till you get your claws into all of this because yeah. I'm guessing that you're going to make him a symbol for something larger. Cause I can't there, I can't remember anyone quite like him anywhere in sports. Honest to God. No, my favorite was, I mean, well, Ricky wants his money. That's the one thing I was talking to Dave Stewart. Dave Stewart said, never forget. Ricky is all about the money. Do not forget for a minute that but Ricky he was one of the original money. mercenaries unapologetic yes, about that and a million other things. But here's the great thing about that, right? Why are we putting that on him when we live in a capitalist society who doesn't want their money right that's also part of this whole thing is that name me a guy in this country you think bill gates doesn't want his money you think donald trump doesn't want his money we all want our money and so uh talking to steve phillips last week 
And Steve is talking about signing Ricky. They signed Ricky in 1999. Ricky's 40. And he hit 236 the year before. So they signed the deal. Ricky's going to be a Met. Here we go, 1999. And his representatives are talking to Steve Phillips, and they tell Steve, okay, the, the deal is done. But now you got to talk to Ricky because Ricky always closes all of his deals. Ricky gets involved in every negotiation. So Ricky gets Steve on the phone. They're talking, and Ricky says to him, so what are you going to give me when I break the record? And Phillips goes, what record? And he says, well, all-time walks and all-time runs. Now, that's Babe Ruth's record, and that's Ty Cobb's record. And, and Phillips says, well, we'll do it up right on the field. You know, we'll do it up right on the field. We'll have an on-field ceremony. We'll, you know, we'll get you a, um, you know, we'll get you a, a you know, a, 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 a nice little symbol, you know, you know, from Tiffany's. And he goes, who's Tiffany? <laughs> And he says, no, no, it's a crystal. And he says, no, who's crystal? <laughs> and Ricky and Philip says, no, no, no. It's, you know, it's a, you know, it's like a, you know, a little statuette made out of glass. And Ricky says, well, what the hell I want with glass? And then finally, Steve Phillips says, well, Ricky, what will make you happy? What do you have in mind? You know, and he says, I want one of those things that John Madden drives around in. <laughs> he wanted a. He and wanted. Philip says, "You want a Madden cruiser?" <laughs> yeah, of course he did. He says, "The and he goes, he goes, Ricky, I got to tell you, we respect what you've done, but almost everything that you've done in this game came with another team. I can't get the Wilpons to sign off on a Winnebago." He should have gotten it. He'd get it today <laughs> if he wanted it. But when you say Howard, you've been at this long enough. When you say, "Yeah, we want all, we all want our money," sure. But you know how that one goes over in sports. You yeah. can explain that to the audience better than most. That's the one place that we want the mythology and the marketing, and we don't That's want, right. well, we want, the, we want you to be grateful. We want you to care about this the way we care about it because it's, it's, it's our passion. So we want it to be your passion. It's actually your job. And so, and that's that paternalism that comes with the sport, right? That's the thing that we we do more to anybody. And we do it to black players more than everybody. And especially, I mean, the roots of that aren't just, oh, well, it's because you're black, right? No, it's because when you when the black players came into the game, this was the escape from Jim Crow. This was the escape from horrible conditions. So therefore, if I'm offering you an escape, you better be grateful for that escape. You're not going to have conditions to come with that escape. And it goes back to the 60s when, you know, the coach in Wyoming, you know, told Tony McGee and those guys in the Black 14, well, you can go back to colored relief if you want, if you don't want to play by our rules. So there's certainly a paternalistic uh, nature, a paternalism that comes with dealing with black players. And Ricky is part of that Ali generation. That's not going to be deferential. He's not, he was not the guy who was going to be like, um, just, you know, baseball's been really, you know, very, very good to me. You know, you know, baseball's been great to me. And I'm just, I just, let's play too. Ricky's not that guy. Ricky's like, I'm the show. I'm the guy. Pay me my money. And Believe me, that was not a popular thing in management. It is not a popular thing in the clubhouse, and it was certainly not a popular thing in the stands, except for the fact that he was so electric, the fans still loved him. I mean, when he and Jose Canseco had their battles in the you know, late 80s, early 90s over money, I mean, Ricky pretty much just came out, you know, if you're going to pay me like Mike Gallego, I'm going to play like Mike Gallego. <laughs> Mike Gallego is going to take a stray on that one. So, but... Absolutely. Here's a guy who was so 
I don't want to say he's aloof, but he is, but it's, it's something else. He's so aware of where he fits that he's completely not bashful about saying I deserve X amount of dollars. What do you regard as your most rewarding book? Oh, they're all different. Um, I always feel like this one's been fun. I mean, obviously shout out is the first one and it got you into the business and it really changed everything. Um, I, I always feel like, I mean, I think the Henry is probably my favorite because I just had so much respect for him. I mean, Henry to me was just everything we're talking about. We're talking about the athlete's control. We're talking about propaganda. We're talking about all of these things. Henry Aaron was exactly the opposite. He told me point blank to my face, I'm not going to contribute to the book. Like I'm not going to help you because it's not authorized, but I'm not going to stand in your way. And he didn't ask me for a dime. And that runs counter to everything that happens in the culture today. Henry Aaron was, was, they tell us when you work on biographies that at some point by the end of the end of the book, you're going to hate your subject. I never hated that man because he, he's just, he really was as close to everything you could possibly want in just a humble, good person who also lived it. Right. I mean, everybody, and I walked away from that book, everyone would always talk about Hank Aaron as, Oh, look at all the stuff he went through. No, 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 no. It's what you did to him. It's not what he went through. It's what you did to him and that he had to figure out a way to navigate this country and what this country did to him while calling him bitter all the time. And yet he still came out and, and was able to enjoy an amazing life. I just, I, like I said, Henry is, he's the, he's the top for me. They say never meet your heroes, but it sounds like he exceeded your expectations and they were pretty lofty. Well, what was wild about it was that he was never my hero. That's the thing about you were asking about process. Aaron book scared the hell out of me because I was like, dude, why are you going into the deep end of the pool? I had three major, major problems with Henry. Number one, I'm from Boston. He's from Mobile. So you got a Yankee going down there trying to write about somebody. They're going to they're going to sniff you out in a minute. You're going to be completely inauthentic. They're going to look at you. And you're going to you have to make sure that you avoid all of these different cliches. Two, I was born in 1968. He was born in 1934. So you got to make sure as a, as, a, as a kid born in 68, you're not placing your, you know, you're not placing who you are, um, you know, your worldview on somebody who was born in the Great Depression in Mobile, Alabama. And then the third thing was is that Henry retired when I was seven. I never saw him play, so I can't even recreate. And he was in the National League. So for the most part, so I never got to see him at all. I just had him in my mind, you know, so you had your idea of what he was. But, you know, with Ricky, you can recreate Ricky because you saw him. You can recreate some of these guys. But with Henry, I had those three issues. And so this was like, this is going to require every um, every bit of journalistic ability and every bit of human ability you have to listen, to to report, to analyze, to do this the right way. because. You know, you walk down there in Mobile and, you know, the minute, I, the minute I start talking, whether you're talking to somebody black or somebody white, they're like, you're not from here. You don't know us. You're not. Why would we ever trust you with the real story of our lives down here? Because all you're going to do is place your northern shit all over us. Right. And so it took a lot of um, 
it, it took a it took a lot to try to get that book right. And I was I was proud of the fact that um, that that I thought that I did, except for the fact that I hadn't talked to Henry. And I hadn't talked to his wife. I hadn't talked to anybody. So I go to Cooperstown after the book comes out. And there they are at an event at Cooperstown. And I see Henry's wife, Billy. And I hadn't seen them. So I have no idea if they liked the book or not. And I see Mrs. Aaron. And she points at me. And she's giving me the, you know, sign to come over. And I'm like, oh, here we go. And she comes over to me. And she says to me in that soft, buttery assassin's voice that Billy Aaron has, I just thought you did such a nice job. But you made one major mistake and I'm like okay and she says my part just wasn't big enough (laughs) and I thought that was and she was right because she was behind she was the woman behind the throne as well and so yeah Aaron by far was the book that um and I'd never written biography before either so you had to you had to really prove to yourself do you have the chops to do this right I mean and I told Henry when he said to me, um, what did he say? And he's like, you know, this is a big book. And I said, yeah, okay. But it's not hard to write a really long, shitty book. It's still got to be good, right? So that was the that was a, a real challenge. What a flattering thing, though, to have met that man's standards. Yeah, I mean, and Henry was, like I said, I mean, I walked up to him one day. We were in Cooperstown on a different occasion, and I said to him, um, so I'm looking at this, and, 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 and this is what happens in America, right, is that it's almost like um, the very crude but very, very funny and real line from John Houston in Chinatown. You know, old buildings and whores become respectable if they stick around long enough. This is what we do, right? If you stick around long enough, all is forgiven, and suddenly everything that, like, the World Trade Center is revered now. It was an ugly building. And nobody wanted it there when it was first, you know, when it, when it first went up, they're like, these towers are really ugly. They're an eyesore, but now it's revered. And so everybody now is talking about Henry and how great Henry is and how, you know, how Henry was ahead of America and the whole thing. And, and even the guys who were like really rude to him, like, for example, there was this Joe Adcock and Johnny Logan were in the bathroom one day and there's Adcock sitting there dropping N word after N word. And, you know, what do they want? And, you know, they need to be put in their place and the whole thing. And then they hear the toilet flush and Henry walks out of the stall and Adcock looks at him and Logan looks at him and then they just keep on talking. No apologies, nothing. They just, that's what it was in 1954. And so then I talked to Henry about this and, you know, about how, you know, Warren Spahn and all these other guys apologized to him and Adcock and Henry stopped me in my tracks and he said, Joe Adcock never apologized to me. Which was his way of saying, all is not forgiven. Howard, good talking to you. Good having you aboard. Excited for everything that is in our future of possibilities. Thank you, sir. Oh, it's my pleasure. Really looking forward to doing this. A lot has changed over the years, but you know one thing that has the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what's the best thing about the original light beer? I pose this question to you. I don't know. You tell me right now. Okay, yeah, that's good. I like that. Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975, and we still haven't settled it. The best thing for me about a nice Miller Lite is when I'm on the boat, I bring those tall... I I don't even go for the the regular 12-ounce cans. I hit the tall boy 16-ounce cans. They usually come in a four-packs wherever I buy beer. You put it in the cooler. You put some ice on top. The moment you take it out and the sun reflects off that gold top of Miller Lite with that white can, 
a beautiful sight out on the open ocean. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling, and it tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com beach, or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 96 calories per 12 ounces, fewer cows and carbs than premium regular beer. 